0: Didn't come to Sunday school. It's good to see everybody here today. Welcome back from trips and so forth. Uh, In the Sunday school, uh, Dick shared that uh, Billy Graham had a a saying that, that he held to, that he believed in, is that he wasn't responsible for anybody's response to the gospel, but he was responsible to preach the gospel and i think that goes for all of us we are not responsible for anybody's response to the gospel that's god's doing but we are to be ones who proclaim his word as he has told us to do and so i would encourage you guys when you have chance to share the gospel with others to share the gospel boldly and confidently and lay your head and go to bed and let him worry about the results not you so cuz it is his gospel so, let's uh go ahead and uh, pray and and then we'll 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 dig in. Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence today as your blood bought people, Lord, and we can worship you and we can sing praises to you and we can dance in the freedom of who you are, Lord. Lord, I thank you this morning, as we sit here, that you are the one who sets the captive free, and you are the one who breaks every chain. but Father, I would pray today that we would see that we once were the ones who were captive, and we once were the ones who were chained. Father, so open our eyes to who you are and how great you are, Lord. I thank you for everyone here today, Lord I pray for Karen today Lord as we all know Karen as she's had uh, another loved one pass away Lord we pray for her and her husband and give them strength as she uh, comes upon the anniversary of her son's death Lord we pray you would comfort her and her husband in all these areas Lord we pray for uh, Mike and we pray for Debbie and their backs Lord that you would just touch their backs Lord and heal them and Give them much rest with this, Lord. And for anyone else in here today who is ailing or has aches and pains, Father, that we would know that one day we will not have these aches and pains, but we will be with you. So, Lord, comfort us as we need to be comforted, encourage us as we need to be encouraged, and convict us where we need to be convicted, so that we will glorify you and praise you more and more each day. In your name, amen. So, I'm going to start a little series. And uh, the series is on the doctrines of grace, is what the series is on. And, uh, and I, I want to start off with our salvation, that we have a glorious salvation. Do, do we not? Would you guys agree with me that it's a glorious salvation? But sometimes we forget that it's a glorious salvation because we get complacent with our salvation, right? To, to say the words, the Lord has saved me becomes kind of complacent because we hear it all the time that this is what Jesus has done Jesus has died on the cross for my sin right? the ones who were condemned we just read he was the one that has set us free so we see we have this glorious salvation and it's none of our doing it's none of our doing at all it's all of his work that has That he has done. So today as I start this. It's going to be like I said on the doctrines of grace. This is nothing new. The doctrines of grace aren't new. They're in the scriptures. So if you have an argument with the doctrines of grace. Do not argue with the messenger. But argue with the scriptures. Because the scriptures are complete. And they're full with these doctrines of grace. But there has been arguments through the years. Uh, Augustine and Pelagius. Argued with it. Martin Luther and Erasmus, Uh, John Calvin and Jacob Arminius. And we see that in our study through uh, Christianity in America, that the very thing that Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield preached were the doctrines of grace which set ablaze the first great awakening. And so, what did they preach? Well, that's what we will take a series on and we will look at. But in order for us to see the good news of a glorious salvation we have, we first have to see the bad news, right? So bad news is what makes the good news good news. We have to see the bad news. And the bad news is is the bad news of us, how bad we are. And so what I want to encourage you today to do is as I preach through this or I teach through this, is for you to see through God's eyes. We have to see it through God's eyes, not through man's eyes. We took some time last year and we did a 10-week study on who God is, right? The attributes of God. And we have to remember that God is fully and completely holy. Perfect in every aspect. That means the most fucking The finite sin that we commit is an infinite offense against him. We have to remember this as we go through these doctrines of grace of the character of God is, especially his holiness. So first of all, we have to look at what the bad news is, right? We are, as I said in this thing, radically depraved we are radically depraved this is who we are and this happens right at the beginning in Genesis it's the fall we all know the story of the fall right it's Eve's fault not Adam's right there we got some laughs okay but we all know what the story of the fall is right how Adam and Eve disobey God they listen to the voice of the serpent so we're not going to study about the fall. But what I want us to look at is in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, this is what it says. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. So now what does this mean? What did God mean, you shall surely die? Is it just a physical death That Adam and Eve would experience Or would it be a spiritual death too Well the answer to that is yes It's a death It's a physical death and it's a spiritual death It is both If we look at this Just think through Genesis with me Just through the first six chapters Or from three on Right After Adam and Eve fall And they clothe themselves And God is walking in the midst of the garden What do they do they hide exactly that's what they do they hide from God right and then God finds them which we'll look at next week God finds them and he asks Adam why did you hide or what has happened to you and so what does Adam do he begins to lie we see sin just starts to compound right he blames his wife he says it's her fault And then she blames the serpent. So we see the blame game take place. There was no responsibility. We see how sin had entered in now, and there was no responsibility. We see that Adam did not love God as he should have loved him. And we see that he did not obey God as he ought to, but he did the very opposite. He ran from God. He hid himself, right? That's what he did. He ran from God. God. That's what he does. So let's take chapter 4, if we don't think sin was really entered in. What happens in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel? We get the first murder. Now the first murder takes place. And then we see in chapter 5, we see in chapter 5, we see in Adam's genealogy, we see these words that take place. And they They lived a long time, but they died. We have a physical death. Then we get to chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins what? Does everybody know what chapter 6 begins? It's the flood, right? It's the flood. And this is what we read in chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The wickedness of man, their depravity, their radical depravity. Right? Oh, well, no, they had to be good, but that's not what it says. It says that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Did we catch that? This is God's word, brothers and sisters. Every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. That's all they knew. That's all they did. That's all they thought was evil continually. So God destroys with a flood except eight people but we see just in this verse the radical depravity of man we see that man is born into Adam's likeness you and I are born into Adam's likeness the very corrupt nature that Adam had we have because of the fall we are fully and completely and radically depraved we are corrupt this is who we are so now, let's fast forward into the New Testament. And what, is, what does Paul say about it? What does Paul say about it? Well, let's look at this. So the first thing we have is this fall, this sin. Well, Paul takes a different way. Paul says that the unbeliever, the one who is born into Adam, is dead. That's how Paul describes As he's dead. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were Dead. So, the unbeliever, the one who is unregenerate, the one who is not in Christ but is still in Adam, his nature is that he is dead. He is dead how? In his trespasses and sin. That's what verse 1 says. Now, this word dead, this word dead means dead. In the Greek, it means dead, it means a corpse that's what it means it means if we go down to the morgue and we pull out that body and it's cold and it's dead and it is unresponsive to anything we say it is dead we've all seen somebody that's dead I I hope they don't move they don't shake hands This is the imagery Paul is giving to the one who is in Adam, to the one who is unregenerate, to the unbeliever is that he is dead. Colossians 2.13, Paul writes this, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He writes it to the Colossian church. Again, that word dead means dead. So first of all in this passage, we see that the unbeliever is dead dead is dead secondly we see that the unbeliever practices sin verse 2 in which you once walked you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked so the unbeliever walks in sin talks in sin thinks in sin everything is tainted with sin this word walk means to be occupied with Right? And we've all been occupied with something, right? Uh, if you have Netflix, you binge watch, right? We can binge watch stuff, right? Me and Jenny do this all the time, right? And we're occupied with what we're watching. This is what Paul is saying, is that the unbeliever, you and I, at one point, all we were occupied with was sin. That's what dominated us. That's what dominated you and I. This is what he means by occupied with. This is the reality of the unbeliever. This is what keeps him from the kingdom of God. This practice keeps him from the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexually. These people will not enter the kingdom of God. Galatians five, nineteen through twenty one. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is the practice of sin. This is all the unbeliever does Is he practices sin Now why does he practice sin Because he's enslaved to it Right we sang the song You break the chains You break the chains God breaks the chains We don't break the chains We can't break the chains Why because we are unable to break the chain Why because you're dead it's simple because you're dead you can't break the chains you need God to break the chains you're enslaved to sin verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh look at that word live they live in the passions of their flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like all of mankind they have no power to choose differently they do not understand the battle because all they do is sin Think about it Think about it When you came to faith Think about it When God drew you to him Think about when God Saved you Guess what happened The battle became real Right Now all of a sudden You're like "Ooh, wow That's sin (laughs) But before you're like Ah no biggie Everybody's doing it I'll do it But the battle happens When the Lord saves us The battle happens But when you remain Enslaved to sin When you remain An unbeliever You don't even know There's a battle going on right you are just like people are just like everybody that's in Judges at the end of Judges it says everybody did what was right in their own eyes why because there was no king they did what was right in their own eyes they didn't know the battle but when we're saved we understand the battle but what Paul is saying here is that every unbeliever is enslaved to sin they're enslaved to sin the sinner is enslaved to the passions of his flesh he carries out the desires of the body and mind Romans 6 6 puts it this way we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body might be brought to nothing so that we no longer would be enslaved to sin. So what Paul is saying is in Romans, is since we are in Christ and Christ has been crucified, we as believers are no longer enslaved to sin, but as the unbeliever sits there, they are enslaved to sin. They are enslaved to sin. So what's this mean? It means that sin reigns in their body. It means that sin is their master because they're enslaved to sin. They need the chains to be broken. But as I said before, they can't break them because they're dead. Not only this, but the unbeliever, by nature, is the object of God's wrath. By nature. That is the nature, right? When you're born, when that baby comes out of the womb, or even as David said, in the womb, their nature is Adam's nature it is completely corrupt that baby when it comes out is not this perfect little angel that baby is a sinner and is the object of God's wrath that's how we are if you're an unbeliever you are the object of God's wrath you are an object of his wrath listen to uh what John 3, 36 says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The writer to the Hebrews says it this way in ten thirty and 31. For we know him who says vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because the unbeliever Is the object of his wrath. This was you and I, brothers and sisters. Before God invaded your life, you were an object of his wrath. So we see that's how Paul describes it to the Ephesians. Well, how does he do it in Romans? Romans, he puts it in a different way, but it's there. But look at Romans. Romans says this in verses 9 through 12 what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one so Paul groups it in there and he says hey Jews and Gentiles are alike in that time there was the separate right you had the Jews and the Gentiles Pretty much you had the Jews and the rest of the world. That was the Gentiles were the rest of the world. And Paul comes in and he says, hey, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We're all under sin, is what he says. Romans 3.23 says this, what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, that's the nature. That's the human nature. We've all sinned. And we fall short of God's glory. That's why we have to look at our salvation and our depravity through the eyes of God and not through the eyes of man. Because we will have levels, but God doesn't. All have sinned. And all have sinned. Since all have sinned, all fall short of my glory. Meaning all are under my wrath. Why? Why? Because he's a holy, righteous God. So Paul says it that way. So the first thing we have to see is that our moral nature, our morality, that's corrupt. Our moral nature is corrupt. He puts it this way. There is none who are righteous. No, not even one. Now this word righteous, we've looked at it before. It means innocent. It means holy, right? There's not one person that is righteous. Not one. He says, You can take the person on this planet who does the most good. You could take Mother Teresa. Let's take her because everybody uses Mother Teresa because she did such great things, right? But Paul would sit there and say, If she was an unbeliever, she's not righteous. Not even one. She does all these good things, but she's not righteous. Outside of Christ, she's not righteous. It doesn't matter how many good things you do, good things you say, people you help. Your self-righteousness is corrupt. It is radically corrupt, is what Paul says. So our moral nature is corrupt. It is impossible for us to live a righteous life outside of Christ. Listen to Ecclesiastes 7.20. This is what Solomon says. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. that's pretty simple that would be a good one for us to know right? surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins Isaiah 64 6 this is what the prophet says about your righteousness we all have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment a filthy rag we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away so that's what God says of your righteous deeds, brothers and sisters. They are a filthy rag. That's what he says. That's where we were. That's who we were. See, this is how we grasp a glorious salvation as we understand how radically corrupt we were. Or maybe you are. Is what he says. So we see that the moral nature is corrupt because no one is righteous and no one does good. No one does good. This word good means noble or morally excellent. No one is morally excellent. Paul actually says the unbeliever is worthless. He is unprofitable. He brings nothing to the table. Psalms 53.1 puts it this way. The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt doing abominable iniquities. There is none who does good. So, and we, we, we do that, right? We, we have that in our own standards. We'll sit there and say, oh, that person's really good. But that person is not really good because even the good deeds are corrupted by sin. Their motive is corrupted by sin. No one does good Jesus even says, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. That is the Father. That's what our Lord says. None of us do good. So not only is the moral corrupt, but the mind. Our mind is corrupt. Our reasoning is gone. Right? The mind is corrupted. Romans 3.11, no one understands no one understands the human wisdom is bankrupt human wisdom is bankrupt listen to first corinthians 19 through 21 for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning i will thwart where is the one who is wise where is the scribe where is the debater of this age has not god made the foolish the wisdom of the world For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So our minds are corrupt. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Why is he not able to understand them? Because he is spiritually dead that's why he is not able to understand them he doesn't understand the things of God he's not able to understand them he's not able to accept them because our minds are corrupt right go back to Genesis 6 what we just what we read in Genesis 6 5 right every intention of the thought was continually evil the thought our minds gone gone totally corrupt that is where we are hey go to John 3 real quick if you got your Bibles turn to John chapter 3 real quick let's look at a fella I like this guy he's a good fella and we all know him and this guy his name is Nicodemus right His name is Nicodemus. And let's look at what Nicodemus does, right? So in verse 1, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. You come from God, for no one can do these things, signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and in spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here we got Nicodemus, right? And he comes to Jesus, and he never asks a question, but Jesus gives him the answer that he wanted, right? That's what he gives him. And this is what he says. Nicodemus, unless you are born again, unless you are born again, You cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And he says, and you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again by the Spirit, right? So this is our corrupt mind. So Nicodemus is standing there, right? And Jesus says, you can't see the kingdom and you can't enter the kingdom. And the kingdom is standing right in front of him and he can't see him he can't see the kingdom standing in front of him because Jesus is the king of the kingdom Paul's favorite term was we are in Christ we can't enter Christ unless we're born again but how can we be born again it's only of the spirit that's what Jesus says he's telling Nicodemus Nicodemus you're dead need the spirit to come into your life so that you can see the kingdom. That's what he is. He stands there. Wisdom. Our wisdom is bankrupt. It is corrupt outside of Christ. Not only that, but our will is captive. Our will is captive. Look at 11 and 12. Or Romans 11 and 3, 11 and 12. Listen to what it says. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Our will is held captive by sin. So what does that do? What does sin do to us as it holds us captive? It means, first of all, that no one seeks God. That is why it's crucial that we read the word. No one seeks God. Do we get that? No one seeks God. God came into the garden What did Adam do? What did he do? He hid. He didn't go running to him, did he? He hid. Adam did not seek out his creator. Why? Because he was corrupt all of a sudden. His will was captive to sin. He didn't go after his creator. No one seeks God. The unbeliever continually does not seek God, but is continually running from God. This word seek means to investigate or crave or worship God. The unbeliever does not investigate God. The unbeliever does not seek out God. The unbeliever does not crave God. Why? Because he's dead. He can't. That dead corpse does not crave a donut. Does not crave what is good, right? The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. The unbeliever doesn't do that. The unbeliever doesn't taste and see that the Lord is good. His nature is to run from him. He doesn't seek God. All he wants is his own. That is it. He's turned aside. This scene is that men and women actually run from God. They turn aside from him. They take off. And we see it in Adam and Eve. You can't deny it, brothers and sisters. It's in the writing. They hid from God. God was the one who did what? sought them out. They didn't seek him. So the unbeliever in their natural state cannot come to God. Why? Because they are unable to come to God. You and I, brothers and sisters, that was us. That was us. So how do we apply this, right? We have to look at that. How do we apply this? This is how we, the first, this is how we first we apply this, is we never must forget where we come from. We can't forget, as believers, where we came from. That you and I, we were the ones who were dead in our trespasses and sin. We practiced sin. We were enslaved to sin. We were not righteous. We did not understand. We didn't seek God. And we did no good. Therefore, we were objects of God's wrath. There was nothing attractive about us that God would set his affections on us because we were radically depraved. Now, this might be you today. If you sit here and you're an unbeliever and you haven't repented of your sin and you're not following Christ and trusting Christ, this is you. You are dead. You practice sin. You are enslaved to it. You are not righteous, you do not understand, you do not seek after God, and you do not do good. Therefore, the most fearful thing is upon you, and that is God's wrath. I urge you today, repent of your sin. Come to Christ. Hear the Father drawing you to him. Secondly, we apply it this way. We are to praise God because we are his children, and we are no longer the above. If you sit here today as a redeemed child of God, one that God has brought from death to life, this now is you. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins, but you are alive to Christ. You no longer practice sin, but you battle sin. You are no longer enslaved to sin because you are enslaved to Christ. You are righteous. You do understand. You do seek after God. You crave God. You worship God. And the things we do is good because they're in Christ and we are no longer the object of God's wrath, but we are the object of God's love. Amen? Amen. Yes. That's a glorious salvation. And he was the one that changed your nature. You did not wake up one morning and go, oh, this is what I need to do. I will just will myself to do it. You can't will yourself to do it. Just like if I got an IQ of 5, which it probably is, I can't will myself to have the IQ of 149 because it's not my nature. Brothers and sisters, we can't change our nature by willing it. We need somebody to do it. Thirdly, thirdly, we worship God because we have such a great salvation. John 6.44 says this. This is what Jesus says. No one. What does that mean? It means no No one. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So I want to close with a question for you. And this is the question I have. So if you are radically depraved, how then did you come to Christ? Even the Savior says, no one can come to me. Look at that verse. It's up there. Notice it says one thing. It does not say, no one will come to me, but no one can come to me. So, brothers and sisters, as you sit here today as the redeemed of God, my question to you is if Jesus says that you cannot come to him, how did you come to him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your blood-bought people, Lord. May we rejoice in such a glorious salvation that is fully and completely rooted in you and the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we glory in him in your name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our last song.